my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, have the lunatics taken over the asylum system? We have a Home Secretary and Suella Braverman who describes people who are mostly fleeing war, persecution, hunger and torture as invaders. We have dangerous overcrowding at the Manston Processing Centre in Kent and a backlog of 100,000 asylum cases. We're going to speak to Sheila Reynolds, who's Head of Asylum Advocacy at Freedom From Torture, and Amrin Qureshi, a research fellow with a focus on migration at the think tank, the IPPR. Before that, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content that you can't read anywhere else. We can report without fear or favour because there's no billionaire or corporation telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So if you can, please subscribe to the Byline Times. Subscriptions start from as little as £3 a month. Get full details over at our website, bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Sheila and to Amreen. Sheila, why has this crisis suddenly emerged now? And I'm using the word crisis advisedly and in inverted commas, but why this, why now? Yeah, so you're right to call it a crisis. It is a crisis, but really important to remember it's a crisis of compassion, a, a crisis of failed policymaking. I mean, a crisis of the government's own making. It was a political choice not to invest resource into the UK's asylum system and instead to pursue a series of inhumane and unethical policy solutions, things like the Cash for Humans Rwanda scheme, rather than build a system in the UK that treats people with dignity, that assesses their claims fairly, and that makes decisions promptly. And that's why we're seeing the kind of backlog in asylum claims that we've been seeing. I mean, it's over 100,000 cases that are waiting for a decision at the moment from the Home Office. And that is what's caused the backlog in transferring, transiting people from places like Manston, into asylum accommodation. And that is why we're seeing the failure of front-end processes and the kind of humanitarian crisis that we are seeing on the UK's own territory in the form of Manston. When we hear a Home Secretary using a word like invasion for people seeking to cross the Channel and arrive in the UK, what are we to make of that? I think that kind of language is disgusting. And people have been rightly outraged by uh, her description, that description that she's used of people coming across the channel. I think when you've got the representatives of organisations that speak for Holocaust survivors and their children expressing their horror at this really sadly familiar rhetoric, then you really have to sit up and pay attention, don't you? I mean, this kind of language has absolutely no place in our politics. It's incredibly irresponsible, particularly bearing in mind the attack that we saw in Dover. And it really should be denounced by all MPs and retracted by the Home Secretary. It's completely unacceptable. Amreen, where do we stand in global terms in regard to our reception of migrants, those fleeing persecution, those fleeing war, hunger in other parts of the world? 
we've done research on the people that are, for example, crossing the channel and coming into the UK. And we have found that some of the most common countries that people are coming from are places like Afghanistan, Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Albania, all of these countries that we know have dealt with political instabilities, with war. So people are fleeing persecution. In terms of where we stand in the global context, I think it's important to understand that when people are fleeing persecution, it's clear that there are humanitarian crises happening in other parts of the world. And people are coming to the UK more than likely because they have family links here, they have community links here, or they can speak the language to believe that they can integrate into UK society better, and also believing that their human rights will be protected in the UK. So people that are crossing the channel to come to the UK if they're claiming asylum, our research has shown that they're more than likely to be successful. So to say that it's an invasion is actually factually incorrect. It's stoking division. And if as a country, as a nation, we pride ourselves on helping others during um, a time of crisis, like we have seen with the Russian invasion in Ukraine, then we need to uphold this, those same values for other people that are fleeing other conflicts too. You mentioned one country in your list of origin countries for people arriving in the UK. That was Albania. Now, the Prime Minister of Albania, Eddie Rama, has said that Albania is a NATO country. It's negotiating EU membership. It is also a safe country of origin. And much has been made by Suella Braverman and the governments of arrivals in the UK from Albania. Is there any reason for someone from Albania to be seeking refuge in the UK? We've found that in Albania, they're currently facing major challenges with organised crime and revenge killings as well. So that is something that we have noted in the research that we released recently. To understand why there is a sudden rise in people coming from Albania to the UK, I think from a researcher's perspective, it's still too early to gather the evidence to understand that. And actually, that brings me to another point the lack of data collection that happens around the channel crossings. So the government isn't even trying to understand why people are crossing the channel, why numbers are rising. And I think that's a serious mistake on behalf of the Home Office. It's also something that's been pointed out by the Home Affairs Select Committee. If they were trying to understand the intentions, the drivers of people trying to cross the channel, then actually that would automatically lead to better policy making. It would mean that they would run an asylum system that has compassion and it means that they would be able to deal with the crisis at the channel more effectively in many ways. There have been suggestions that the UK might decide to deport Albanian migrants before they could appeal against any rejected asylum claim. That's subject to agreement with Albania, but Albania's Prime Minister is pretty angry at what he sees as the lack of respect shown by the UK, what he describes as the easy rhetoric being used against Albanian migrants. So it seems that in talking tough, we might actually have made it more difficult for ourselves to return migrants from that country. I think this notion of talking tough, this notion of deterrence in general is very problematic. And this has been a recurring theme with the approach that the government's taken with our asylum systems, with our immigration system as a whole, with tackling the channel crossings. And I think we need to remember that actually asylum seekers have the right to seek asylum in whichever country they desire and be able to do so with dignity and these rights are enshrined in international law. If we're not giving asylum seekers a chance to seek asylum in our country, and let's not forget, you have to physically be on UK soil in order to seek asylum. If we're not giving people the opportunities 
to seek asylum with dignity. That's counter to the letter and spirit of the Refugee Convention. Sheila, people do ask the question, given that migrants are already in France, which is a, a safe country, why do they risk their lives and get on boats to come across to the UK? Yeah, they do ask that question. And first of all, I think it's really important to clarify that the vast majority of people who are fleeing situations of persecution remain either in their region of origin or in neighbouring countries to the, the country that they fled, or they do stay in Europe, on continental Europe, in France, in Germany, in Italy. The numbers that make it through to the UK are, are very low compared to our, our neighbours. France takes almost double the number of asylum seekers as the UK, Germany almost three times as many. The reasons that those who do choose to come on and cross the channel come to the UK, and Camarina has mentioned in the research that IPPR has recently done, and, and we know this as well at Freedom From Torture through contact with our clients, the vast majority of whom are, are seeking asylum and are, are from those same countries that we see in the boats crossing the channel. They're from Iran, they're from Afghanistan, they're from Eritrea. They are seeking to come to the UK because they have family here and they want to join their family members. They want to join the members of their community with whom they share a history, a language, an identity, as you or I would do. It's a very understandable human compulsion to find people from your community, from your family, when you're seeking safety. And I think it's really important here to note that safety is not just about fleeing the immediate situation of danger. It's not just about dodging the bullets. It's about finding somewhere that you can rebuild your life. And this is what our clients tell us about why they have come to the UK. They want to find somewhere where not only they feel safe, but they know they have possibly longer term security and stability, that they can find a community that will help them to support them. They can get financial independence. They can work. They can raise their children and put them through school. That's what they're looking for. And that's why many of them come to the UK. And of course, so many don't choose to come to the UK. Many of our clients found themselves here at the end of a long and um, dangerous journey. And you know, it was a decision that was made by a smuggler based on a, a certain route that they had. So I think it's important to remember that it's very much a mixed picture in terms of why people come on from France to the UK. But there are very, very legitimate reasons why people choose to come to the UK to seek safety. And the research shows that the majority of people seeking asylum in the UK do have their claims upheld. They are not illegal. They are genuine asylum seekers and are entitled under international treaties signed by this country to find a place of haven here. What kind of stories do they tell you, Sheila, about their experiences and why they have had to flee their home country? We're due to publish a, a report at the end of this month where we've spoken to our clinicians and our legal and welfare advisors about what we've learned through our, our client contacts about the reasons that they fled and the reasons they've taken the journeys they have to seek safety. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned some of the countries that they come from. It's a roll call of failed states and oppressive regimes. They are fleeing some of the most unimaginable horrors, some of which we've been seeing on the TV screens recently, you know, a situation in Iran where incredibly brave people are fighting to defend rights that we in the UK hold very dear. They tell us some unimaginable stories of torture, of trauma, of violence at the hands of both state and non-state actors. 
And these are the things that are pushing people out of their country of origin. And, the, and these are the factors that continue to push people from one country to the next, because quite often they tell us they need to put some physical space between themselves and their country of origin where they experienced the persecution because they don't feel safe in the countries that immediately neighbor the country of origin. And so they keep moving until they feel safe. Often they experience extreme hardship and danger in the countries in which they are passing through. And that's another reason why they keep moving. And, and that includes countries within the EU. Often France is referred to as a very safe country. Now, I'm not sure that someone who has experienced their tent being repeatedly bulldozed, their children being tear gassed, the kind of violent mob attacks that have been reported widely as experienced by people in northern France. I'm not sure any of those would would refer to France as safe. And this is another reason why people keep moving on. They understand, they believe that the UK will be a country that will welcome them, that will offer them safety, that will offer them security. And a lot of this is based on a historic relationship that that person might have with the UK from their country of origin. Perhaps it had a colonial relationship with the UK. And so a lot of the culture and legal institutions and others have been have been translated over to that country. They recognise the UK culturally, historically, linguistically. And so they feel it's somewhere that they can go to and, and they're going to have their rights respected. And I think that's a big factor for why people keep moving. That's what they tell us. That's why they keep moving on through Europe to the UK. The cynic in me just wonders if for an incoming Home Secretary with an anti-migration stance, a crisis of this kind isn't actually good news. They could demonstrate that they were tough on migration. This hostile environment approach to immigration asylum policymaking is not new, but it is one that has been honed to perfection by Suella Braveman and, and Priti Patel. I think you could see the certain decisions that have been made around the resourcing of the asylum system, the reception conditions that are offered to people on arrival, and once their claim has been registered, the use of hotels, the use of contingency accommodation in former barracks. It's a succession of policy decisions that have the effect of making the environment extremely hostile for people who've arrived here. And I think threat of, of being put on a plane and sent to Rwanda it's all part of a package, an approach that tries to create an environment that is so intolerable within the UK that they believe it will either motivate people to leave or it will deter people who are considering coming here. Now, there's absolutely no evidence that it is doing either of those things. But what it almost certainly will do is it will deter people from entering the asylum system once they are here. It will terrify people away from entering a system that ideally should be capable of processing them, identifying any vulnerabilities, identifying any indicators of trafficking or torture or trauma and providing protection to people who need it. And my worry is that those people, for fear of being stuck in Manston, stuck in a hotel, put into detention, put on a plane to Rwanda, they won't seek asylum. But they will still be here. They will still be on UK territory, but they will be entirely vulnerable to the further exploitation by traffickers and others within the UK who would wish to exploit them. And I think that is a really, really dangerous and very likely possibility from the hostile approach to immigration asylum. Amrin, you talk about the desire to have a safe and legal route for those seeking asylum in the UK. What might that look like? 
So in our research that we've released recently, we have been speaking to various stakeholders across the sector. We have been speaking to legal experts. We've been speaking to people with lived experience across the channel. And the general consensus is that one of the main ways that we can reduce the number of people making that perilous journey across the channel is to establish safe and legal routes. Now, one of the more prominent ways that are being proposed is this concept of a humanitarian visa. And there is precedence for that. Other countries have done that. And it's the idea that you can provide people that are, for example, based in northern France, a pass so that they can enter UK soil, physically be present and then apply for asylum. Now, there are lots of other ways that can be tested. We just need to make sure that we're willing to establish safe and legal routes. And that's currently not what's happening. There is no political will on behalf of the government of trying to establish safe and legal routes. But outside of safe and legal routes, when we think about the channel crossings in particular, we need to think about the way that we can better our relationships with the French authorities. As Sheila mentioned before, there is a lot of violence in northern France perpetrated upon asylum seekers. And that's under this policy called the anti-fixation policy. So we need to consider what the UK's role is in trying to ensure that France doesn't use excessive force upon asylum seekers. But also we need to think about the way that we can have wholesale reform of our asylum system. Because if we fix things at home, then actually that's an adequate overall response on how to deal with the channel crossings. It means that a lot of problems within our immigration system in general will be fixed. And one of the best ways that we can do that is by addressing the backlog that we have right now. The reason why we have a backlog is because we have long waiting times. It's because home office staff are dealing with archaic IT equipment. It's because our asylum processing systems are under-resourced and we need to be innovative. We need to find different ways that we can address this backlog. And if we do that, it's a surefire way of making sure that things like Manston don't happen again. Is your suggestion then that we would have perhaps application centres based in other parts of the world where people could submit an application for asylum in the UK, their claim could be processed in that country, and then they'd be admitted to the UK if they qualify. Yes, this is an idea that has been suggested by some of our stakeholders in our research. This idea, however, does need testing. We need to think about how that would work pragmatically. But it is a popular idea amongst our stakeholders because we understand that that is one of the alternative ways to make sure that people can seek asylum in a safe way rather than making that perilous journey. Because as I have said before, right at this moment in time, the only way that you can seek asylum is to reach UK shores. And if the government hasn't offered any safe routes for people to do that, then maybe asylum centres or processing centres or other alternative solutions will help with reducing the number of people putting their lives in the hands of people smugglers, getting on unseaworthy boats and risking their lives to cross the channel and attempt to reunite with family members or community members that they have in the UK. I saw a similar proposal, I think, at the Conservative Home blog, and my apologies to them in advance if I'm misrepresenting them. They were advocating something similar, I think, to what you've suggested, but with one important tweak, suggesting that the numbers who come to the UK via that system should be capped. Is that fair and reasonable in your view? I think when it comes to numbers, we need to consider okay, so what would that cap be? What is a reasonable number? What if we see more crises happening like Ukraine? 
I think there's a lot of pragmatic answers that we need to find around is a cap ideal? Can it be unlimited? I don't think there's a straightforward answer to that just yet. And But I do think that the Conservative government needs to be open to having these conversations right now. The reality is that that's not even happening. So we've just spent the past few minutes discussing alternative solutions. But right now, the government is really focused on Rwanda. They're focused on the Nationality and Borders Act. They're focused on new operational and security measures at the UK and French border. But even before we start talking about numbers and caps, we need to make sure that the Conservative government is open to alternative solutions. And right now, it doesn't seem like they are. I really do not see how we could run a system by which there was a cap on the number of asylum seekers Mm -hmm. we could take that would be compliant with our international obligations. I do not think that is possible. And I, I, I worry a lot about discussions that revolve around the idea of a numerical limit or a cap on the number of asylum claimants that we take. I think Amrin's also very correct to apply caution to this proposal around humanitarian visas or, or indeed the any kind of extraterritorial processing of asylum claims or, or of, of the UK's asylum system on, on another territory. It is a core principle of the international refugee protection regime that you seek asylum on the territory on which you are. And I think we need to be very careful about anything that suggests extraterritorializing the UK's asylum procedure mainly because of of what that would mean in terms of the legal rights and protection of those rights for individuals who are on another territory but subject to the UK's legal and and processing systems. What would their access to legal advice and uh, procedural safeguards and the legal remedy be were they not to be accepted for transfer to the UK? There's a whole lot of other complications around any sort of processing uh, system, particularly in northern France, not least of all whether France would agree to any kind of system whereby the UK delivers part of its asylum system on their territory. The, The really important focus here is what the UK government has done or failed to do with our own asylum processing system on our territory. This has been a systematic failure to invest both politically and in terms of resource that can be, that is, that should be entirely capable of processing the numbers of people who are coming across the channel. Our asylum intake has not increased dramatically over the years. Yes, the numbers coming across the channel has, but we know that that is due to a number of factors, including the securitization of of other routes that people were previously taking. But we are more than capable of receiving, welcoming and processing the numbers that are coming across the channel right now. Nobody wants to see refugees crammed into unsafe boats, right? And everybody agrees that we want dangerous crossings to stop, but we need to be clear. We need to stop supporting this idea that that we are too full or that we can't cope with these numbers. And we've shown that we can set up schemes for Hong Kongers, for Ukrainians, that actually welcome far more people than are arriving from anywhere else in the world combined. Why do we accept this idea that we are incapable of running a system in the UK that can offer people who arrive on our shores a route into an asylum system that will hear their claim fairly, that will make a decision promptly, that will treat them humanely and that will provide them with protection that recognises their dignity and their their shared humanity here. I mean, obviously, there's there's no easy solutions. The very last thing that we need right now is is more regressive border control policies that are based on securitisation, deterrence and extraterritorialization, and and mainly because they, they don't work. And what they do do is they increase the risk to individuals. 
Amrin has mentioned some of the solutions. Yes, absolutely. Collaboration with, not just with France, but, but with the EU and with other international actors like UNHCR to increase access to protection globally, to try and address some of the failings in the protection systems that people are encountering all the way from their journey from the country of origin through to the UK. But crucially, to ensure that the UK is sharing responsibility, not just for providing protection to people through, for example, resettlement, but sharing responsibility for assessing and determining asylum claims fairly. And that means having a strong asylum system in this country that we can be proud of and that the public is proud of. And that means the political will that, again, that was was talking about earlier. It means having leaders, having a home secretary that's proud of our asylum system, having a prime minister that's proud of our asylum system. And I think that will inspire pride within the general public. This is a country that wants to welcome people. People open their homes to Ukrainians in unprecedented numbers. We can do this. We can be a country that welcomes people, but, but we do need the government to put in place safe routes, to expand the routes that exist. That's resettlement, family reunion, and to invest in our asylum system so that we can address that backlog, get rid of that backlog, and you will get rid of the crisis in Manston and the crisis of asylum accommodation and, and holding people in hotels for prolonged periods of time. Amrain, in any system, there will be people, I suspect, who seek to exploit it, perhaps human traffickers, people traffickers, who will attempt to remove people from countries where there isn't necessarily war or famine or outright persecution, but where there's poverty and where there's hunger. Do we have to accept that as part of the the price for having a humane asylum and migration system? Yes, there would be. But I think the approach shouldn't be to expect that every person that enters the UK is a criminal. And I think that's exactly what the government's approach is right now. They're treating people that are coming to the UK with asylum with a lot of hostility. And I think that is the wrong approach. Of course, there might be some that might have their asylum claim rejected on reasonable grounds. I'll take that. But I think the government's current approach is completely void of compassion and actually will criminalise a lot of people um, that come via small boats, for example, through the Nationality and Borders Act. So... I accept what you're saying, but I think that that doesn't mean that the government has the right to treat every person that enters the UK like criminals, as they are doing now. Amreen, thanks very much for your time. Amreen Qureshi from the IPPR. Thanks also to Sheila Reynolds, Head of Asylum Advocacy at Freedom From Torture. I'm Adrian Goldberg, the son of an asylum seeker. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. Don't forget the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly newspaper, the Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you again soon. Thanks to Harvey White, who's helped to produce this episode of the podcast as well. Bye now.